Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and for New York's Stranger Than Fiction series. On this episode, we discuss the making of the landmark civil rights history, Eyes on the Prize, and its creator, Henry Hampton, who died in 1998. I know the one thing we did right was the day we started to fight. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. My guest is John Else, who was a series producer and cameraman for Eyes on the Prize in the 1980s. Now he's written a book about the experience called True South, published by Viking. He delivers a rare account of everything that goes into documentary making, from raising the money to managing a team and getting the journalism right. There's nothing sugar-coated about his account. He portrays Henry Hampton as a complex figure who often frustrated his staff but who pulled off a vital work of history despite tremendous odds. Here's Hampton, interviewed for the DVD Extras. Uh, We all uh, can learn from this period of history. The civil rights movement was a miracle. It was uh, a time, an historic uh, time, 10 years, an eye blink, where we went from basically a segregated system of apartheid and an American version to a relatively free society. And we did it without enormous amounts of violence. Uh, and the people who did it, did it by picking up the weapons of nonviolence and direct action. And in so doing, they created one of the great models for the world and how we, one uh, carries out successful social change. Hampton's company, Blackside, originally produced Eyes on the Prize as a six-part series. It traces the civil rights movement from the murder of Emmett Till in the mid-50s to the marches in Selma, Alabama in 1965. The film team interviewed leaders and foot soldiers on both sides, including white segregationists. Their testimonies are accompanied by riveting archival footage, the music of freedom songs, and tied together with the stately narration of Julian Bond. It was a hard fight, challenging America's basic beliefs. What is an inalienable right? What is equal treatment under the law? What is liberty and justice for all? It was a hard fight, but the prize was freedom, and no American could afford to lose. The series was widely viewed on public television in the late 80s, and Hampton produced an eight-part follow-up called Eyes on the Prize 2. John Else was a natural for the project. As a white college student in the 60s, he spent months in the South working for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He later became a documentary maker and directed The Day After Trinity about J. Robert Oppenheimer and the atomic bomb in 1980. That film was nominated for an Academy Award, Over the years, he's directed a number of films while also teaching at the University of California in Berkeley. I reached him in Berkeley by phone in February while he was fighting a cold. I asked what motivated him when he was a student to join the civil rights movement. 
Well, it was an interesting time to be American. Um, it was the uh, early 60s. It was 1963, 64. Uh, I was a college kid, uh, you know, fresh out of uh, my high school civics class in Sacramento, California. And, you know, sitting in a dorm room college, the, the, the contradictions in America were so, so obvious, so searing. I mean, you know, the, the civil rights movement in the South was just cranking up. We were watching all of these newsreels coming from Alabama and uh, Mississippi, and it was, it was clear that, that, that something, was, something was terribly wrong. It happened that at that moment there were some recruiters from the movement, specifically from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who came through uh, Yale, a guy named Allard Lowenstein, um, and uh, Bob Moses also came through. And they made the argument that a bunch of us, because we were white college students from elite colleges, that we, if we went to Mississippi and became involved in voter registration, we would probably do some good in trying to get voters registered. But more important, we would, we would attract national attention to the, the violence that was going down in Mississippi that was really hidden in the backwoods and the back alleys. And if we could simply make the rest of the country, specifically Washington, aware of what was happening down there, laws would change, policy would change, and we could begin to defeat that kind of racism, you know, at its at its legal core. So I, uh, I dropped out of college and went to Mississippi. Els participated in the Mississippi voter registration drive known as Freedom Summer in 1964 and joined the staff of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee known as SNCC. It was a dangerous place to be. It was certainly no more dangerous for us than it was for local black people in Mississippi and Alabama who lived this every day of their lives. I mean, this, the, the organizers, the civil rights leaders, uh, I mean, they were not asking us to do anything that they wouldn't do. And, you know, I mean, it's a blessing to discover at a very young age, you know, what you're probably willing to die for. That's, <laughs> you know, uh, that's, that's a gift. It was also, I mean, we were young. It was, it, was, it was a great adventure. It was a great, you know, it was a calling for the expansion of democracy. Um, you know, all, 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 of the, all of the above. I mean, you do dangerous things when you're young. That's, that's kind of what you do as a young person. And, and we knew also that, you know, in some ways our job in Mississippi was to be, to be white, to, to draw the fire, to draw the attention of, of local segregationists and then have the national media take note of what was going on down there. And that's exactly what happened. When those three civil rights workers, Goodman, Cheney, and Swerner, were abducted and murdered, if that had just been James Cheney, a local you know, black guy from Meridian, Mississippi, you know, he might have just joined that vast pool of lost souls in Mississippi. But it was the presence of two uh, white guys from New York that fired up the national media. And suddenly it was a national story. Suddenly the president took notice, the Congress took notice. And that was one of the, you know, one of the things that set in motion this sea change that resulted finally um, in the passage of a whole lot of, of legislation. So 
in your in your book, you describe some of the experiences you had in the South as planting the seed for you to become a documentary filmmaker. And I, I wonder how much you know filmmaking was on your mind when you went down there. When I was a young person, the notion of being a documentary filmmaker, I mean, that was nowhere in sight. The, the idea that anyone would grow up to be uh, a documentary maker, that was not a career option. That was not something we, we thought of. We thought we were going to grow up to be, you know, engineers and policemen and, and, and firemen and doctors and school teachers. It was all the, the kind of standard uh, career paths for a kid growing up in the 50s and 60s. And there were two things in the South that, that really, uh, you know, I guess, you know, struck a chord with me. The first was being in Selma, Alabama, and seeing the news crews at work. I mean, we would do these marches in Selma, uh, heading down to the courthouse where the sheriff was waiting with his posse. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, these, these, these news film crews would materialize. like They're like moths. They would just pop out of nowhere. These, they were all, um, you know, these fairly athletic white guys with this heavy hardware. They were completely focused on all their, their technical rigmarole. Uh, they would wade into whatever the, the confrontation of the moment was, um, do their recording, and then they would vanish. And I, I had never seen anything like it. There were also a lot of print journalists there, and they would, you could see them actually race to the phone booths as soon as the whatever the action was, as soon as the action was over, but it was the it was the news crews that impressed me. And then a few months later, I was in the this national SNCC office in Atlanta, Georgia, and there was this nice guy, this nice cameraman, a guy named Haskell Wexler, uh, showed up. And Haskell Wexler was on his way from having shot documentary material in Mississippi, and he parked his equipment in my office for the afternoon. And uh, I remember going out to lunch with this guy. I had no idea who he was. He certainly had no idea who I was. Uh, we had a lovely lunch, and I remember thinking, man, I would, I, would, <laughs> I would love to do what you do. You know, I mean, is this something a person can actually do as their life's work? Haskell Wexler would soon become a celebrated cinematographer of Hollywood's new wave. John Else had to leave Selma just before Bloody Sunday because of a bad leg that needed medical attention. Soon after he left, Henry Hampton made a trip from Boston to Selma to march, despite his own bad leg from childhood polio. Here's Hampton describing the experience. I always knew Selma would be the end of the first part of the series because I was there. I was there because my job called for me to be there. Uh, I worked for the Unitarians, and, and one of the ministers who uh, went south to help out with the, the, the marches was killed, James Reeb. Uh, Jimmy Jackson had already died, uh, and we went down, and we had one last march, the march that was, in fact, going to, to make it. And um, I, I fell in love with the people of Selma because we were walking toward the, uh, the bridge, and I had a bad leg, so I was falling further and further behind, and on both sides of us were Alabama state troopers and all the uh, uh, attendant uh, people from the town who were not friendly, and uh, it was entirely possible I was going to fall back and the crowd was going to leave me behind, 
and some people from Selma saw what was happening, and they came and they sort of surrounded me and marched with me as a sort of informal honor guard, and I was always grateful. It wasn't until two decades after Selma that John Else first heard about Henry Hampton while reading a bulletin from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I was kind of a, you know, a mid-career documentary filmmaker. I, I had finished a couple of feature documentaries. I was actually, ironically enough, I was working on the special effects unit on Top Gun uh, at the time, and I saw a, um, I saw an ad in the the CPB uh, bulletin, which at that time was a hard copy pamphlet that came to your mailbox about once a month. And there was this picture of a friendly guy, a guy named Henry Hampton, who I never heard of, uh, who was uh, starting a series about the civil rights movement. And I mean, I thought, wow, I would love to be part of that. Now, it was no secret that a lot of people had tried to do big documentaries about the civil rights movement. And at that time, in 1985, uh, no one had succeeded. There had been a number that had had false starts. Henry himself had had tried and failed um, a, a few years before um, to do it. Uh, so I called him up. I cold called him, um, got him on the phone. And he said, well, you know, all the positions are filled, but if you're in Boston, why don't you come on by and we'll talk. About a month later, I was actually in Boston. I was at WGBH for pre-production meetings on a big science series that I was going to shoot on. And I went over to uh, the meeting room where Henry and his team were have, were meeting with um, academics, with scholars. And I walked in the back of the room. It was dark, and they were screening the footage of the um, Alabama State Troopers attacking marchers on the Pettus Bridge in Selma. And, you know, I watched this attack go down. I, I watched, uh, you know, I had, I had worked uh, in the Atlanta office of SNCC. John Lewis's office is right down the hall from mine. And there I saw this, this footage of John being, you know, clubbed unconscious. And right there in the dark, I'll never forget it, right there in the dark watching that footage, I decided, man, I've got to work for this guy. i got to figure out some way to be part of this series. So I met Henry Hampton um, after the lights came on, met him for the first time. We went out for a drink. He actually offered me a job on the spot. I took the job on the spot. I, I quit the science series that I was working on for PBS and went, worked, went to work for Henry Hampton uh, the following morning. I remember his staff was surprised when I walked in the next morning, and, and he introduced me as a new member of the team. But that was Henry Way. He had a very impetuous way of, uh, of, of doing pretty much everything, including hiring people. So his company, Blackside, was uh, known for giving opportunities to lots of women filmmakers, to lots of minority filmmakers that I take it did not have as many opportunities in other places. Can, can you describe how unusual that was? Oh, yeah. Well, you, you know, you got to understand that Henry founded his company in 1968. It was a terrible year. <laughs> it's a terrible year to be American. It was a terrible year to found a film company, but that's what he did. And it was sort of this loony optimism. And he founded Blackside partly to make films about the African-American experience and partly to, to train young African-American filmmakers. You know, at, at that time, I mean, there were literally no more than a dozen African-Americans working in documentary in America. And you know, Henry gathered around him over that first decade uh, an extraordinary posse of uh, young people. It's not all black, by the way. There's a lot of folklore that Blackside was an all-black company. It never was. Uh, it was always 
you know, roughly half black, half white. And when he did Eyes on the Prize, uh, he, you know, most of the producers he hired were young folks of color who had no experience doing big documentaries. I mean, it, it was a great act of faith on his part. I mean, there was this young guy named Orlando Bagwell, who virtually no one had heard of at the time. And Henry saw in him, you know, the potential of, of, of a tremendous young filmmaker. He hired a woman named Callie Crosley, who was a young a reporter at ABC Television in New York. Lou Smith, I mean, the, the list goes, goes, goes on and on. And he had, he, had, he had pretty much perfect pitch for hiring uh, people who were not loaded up with heavy experience in the mainstream. You know, when I showed up at the Blackside office in Boston, it was striking how similar that, that office was to the SNCC office in Atlanta, Georgia, where I had worked, um, gosh, 20 years before. I mean, you had this, this kind of low-rent walk-up building in, a, in kind of a sketchy neighborhood with you know, 20 zealots uh, working late into the night. I mean, it was really eerie. Some of the same people were there. Howard Zinn was one of our advisors. I had met him back in the SNCC days. Judy Richardson, an extraordinary SNCC worker, was um, the senior uh, uh, researcher uh, at Eyes on the Prize. I remember seeing Bob Moses himself from the Mississippi Project one afternoon at the Blackside office. Henry Hampton himself had marched in Selma with uh, King, and there he was, uh, you know, running this, uh, you know, this this civil rights story factory in Boston. I mean, it was quite astonishing. Now, um, on the series, you did a lot of camera work, doing some of the interviews in in the South. And I wonder what it was like for you going back there 20 years later, encountering some of these figures, some who you had known, others that you maybe knew only by reputation. Can you describe an exemplary experience in that? You know, for me, I mean, for any American, uh, you know, it was an incredible honor to to spend a couple of months going through the American South, up and down the Civil Rights Trail, uh, revisiting all of these, all of the foot soldiers and, and many of the leaders. I mean, some people had passed away by then, but I mean, I'd be lying to tell you it wasn't, it wasn't absolutely um, exhilarating to do it. Now, we had, we had some interesting issues um, because Henry, Henry was determined not to turn white segregationists into a monolithic kind of mouth-breathing, you know, force of evil. I mean, he just, you know, he, he, he wanted an audience to understand as far as, as much as he could do it, he wanted an audience to try to understand how the segregationists thought. And because of that, we worked really, really hard to secure interviews with resistors, with people who had... Um, had led much of the resistance uh, to the movement uh, in the South in the 1960s. Um, and that raised the question, well, you know, if you're going to go interview the head of the White Citizens Council, do you go with an all-white crew? Do you go with a mixed crew? What do you do? And it was decided back in Boston that it was our job as filmmakers to make people comfortable in their own speech, comfortable in their own place, to allow them to be their best selves and to not edit themselves because of who happened to be in the room. What that meant was that sometimes we would film with an all-black crew and sometimes we would film with an all-white crew, which you know, often felt 
kind of creepy because Blackside was a resolutely multicultural, multi-ethnic outfit. Well, I mean, you know, someone asked Henry, how do we film the Klan? And Henry said, get a sheet. In Eyes on the Prize, the white Mississippi segregationist William Simmons gives this interview 20 years after Freedom Summer. When the civil rights workers invaded the state in the summer of 1964 to change us, presumably into their own image, they were met with a feeling of some curiosity, but mostly resentment. Um, they fanned out across the state, uh, made a great to-do of, of breaking up our customs, of flaunting uh, social practices that had been respected by people here over the years. That was the time of the hippies just coming in. Many had on hippie uniforms and conducted themselves in hippie ways. They were not exactly the types of models that most people that I knew wanted to emulate. Also, the, the arrogance that they showed in wanting to reform a whole state in the way they thought it should be created resentment. John Els filmed that interview, but decided not to reveal to Simmons that he had been one of those outside reformers. You know, there were some... Some of these folks uh, had aged pretty substantially by the time we met with them. Ralph Abernathy, we filmed in Atlanta, and he seemed to me just incredibly frail and halting uh, when we uh, interviewed him. But, but he suddenly broke into song. He suddenly began singing Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. It was, uh, you know, it, was a, it was an interesting interview because the singing was spectacular. It seemed to us at the time that what he had to say was so halting that it was probably unusable. But, you know, we got back to Boston and saw that in the context of, of other interviews around him, he, he was just, he was astonishing. We had mistaken his soft manner of speaking for a lack of conviction. You know, we had, as they say, we had confused, uh, you know, a bad time with a bad film. We, we really weren't able in the field to, to appreciate what he, had, what he had given us. Same with Rosa Parks. We interviewed Rosa Parks in Detroit, and she was this, this tiny frail, bird-like woman. I mean, you couldn't imagine that this was the powerhouse who had, you know, been organizing in Montgomery for decades, really, before she refused to give up her seat to a white man uh, on a bus. Now, uh, what possessed you to write a book about these experiences? You know, if you make documentaries long enough, sooner or later, one of them goes down in flames. And I had just come off uh, a disastrous project. And I, I figured that, man, you know, writing a book has got to be easier than making any documentary. Um, as it turned out, writing a book is incredibly hard. But I think I can safely say it's, it, it, in fact, is not as hard as making a big documentary. Now, also, I had assumed over the years since I worked on Eyes that someone was, in fact, writing a book about it. I mean, it was such an important institution. Henry was such an incredibly important producer. I assumed that someone was telling the story, that someone was writing a book that would serve as an operating manual for how you, um, you know, how you do these, these documentaries about social justice in the future. It turned out no one was. 
We'll be back with more from John Else discussing his book, True South, after the break. If you enjoy this podcast, look out for the new podcast, True False, produced by the Festival of the Same Name. True False is releasing episodes every Thursday discussing the art and craft of documentary filmmaking. A recent episode features the brothers Bill and Turner Ross, who directed Contemporary Color. Their film documents a David Byrne concert that collaborates with student color guard performers. The movie then in the end is this swirling document uh, of a happening. You're within the four walls of this arena for for one night only. You span the time, the width and the breadth of the show. You're in the stands, you're backstage, you're on stage, and you go through this, uh, you know, emotional, musical, performative uh, experience with all these humans in a space. You can subscribe to the True False podcast on iTunes or go to truefalse.org. Now, one of the things that I find so admirable about the book is it takes a very unvarnished view of of the process of documentary making and and doesn't shy away from the differences of opinions that uh, that went into uh, the process, to put it mildly. I wonder how you took in different viewpoints uh, from from that big collective to to balance with your own. Part of Henry Hampton's uh, genius was his his understanding that that if you're going to tell this story about America, um, you really had to, and if you're going to tell it for all Americans, I mean, he was determined to make a primetime television program that would be equally accessible and entertaining and riveting to Americans of all sorts, uh, you know, white, black, rich, poor, young, old. And in order to do that, he felt he had to have pretty much all of America represented in the in the production teams. So consequently, each film in Eyes in the Prize was directed by two people, um, a team of one man, one woman, one white, uh, and one black. That became known as the black side method. Um, and, and one of his friends called it the, the abrasion of good minds. So, you know, Henry said he, he really wanted, in the editing room, he wanted black people to have to explain to white people. He wanted white people to have to explain to black people. Um, He said, we have secrets from one another. We have secrets across this great gap of gender and this great gap of race. And he knew that that would lead to very uncomfortable conversations about this history. I mean, what did it mean to be black in Chicago in 1969? What did it mean to be white in Chicago in 1969? He was convinced, and he was absolutely right, that that, I think, made the films better. You know, he was always asking us, how is, how is some white lady in Iowa going to view this? How is some, uh, you know, a black farmer in Alabama um, going to see this? Now, um, I, you know, for my own part, um, I, found it, I found it incredibly invigorating. I mean, I, you know, I had it easy because I was not tasked with actually producing or directing any individual program. I was sort of the overall series producer. Um, I was able to watch all the teams in action because I was doing most of the camera work together with Mike Chin. I had the luxury of being able to sort of sit back in a bemused way 
and and watch the other folks uh, fight it out. I mean, there were the the biggest abrasion of good minds, the biggest conflicts actually occurred over over narrative structure. Interestingly enough, you know, the the at that time in the nineteen eighties and to this day, television, including public television, really demands stories that resolve whenever possible. They really want stories with happy endings. Now, the story of the civil rights movement is a really messy story. It's a messy history, and it's full of of things that don't resolve in a neat Shakespearean way, that don't resolve uh, according to the rules of, of neat three-act structure. So so a lot of the, the arguments uh, and a lot of the combat, and there was a lot of combat, had to do with how nuanced we could make these stories, how um, we could make people, make the audience feel satisfied without slapping a big smiley face um, onto, say, the the victory in Selma, Alabama. For instance, in the Eyes and the Prize episode about um, the Battle of Selma in 1965, where the state troopers attacked the marchers on the bridge, and that ultimately led to outrage in Washington, outrage in Congress, outrage at the White House, uh, and the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Now, we could have left that episode with a nice, clean triumph of the passage of the Voting Rights Act. But Henry and the editors insisted um, that right after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, we put on we put on the Watts riot, which happened in two weeks after the passage in 1965. So we could leave our audience uh, with a lump in the throat. Today, we look at our country and see lots of deep divisions that, you know, for some, for someone who didn't live through the civil rights era, th- these feel like the you know deeper divisions than I've uh, seen in my life. But but you did live through an era of uh, of deep divisions. And and I wonder what lessons you take away from that period that can apply to our times. I've been around long enough to have have lived through some pretty dark times in America. And I think we're we're in a, a dark time now. Uh, I have just you know, unending faith in the American people that, you know, I really believe that in the end, the American people will do the right thing uh, and will stand up for the right thing and will, you know, spontaneously rise to the challenge uh, of the moment. What worries me, having lived through the 1960s, is that back in the day, back in 1965, if you had a mad dog sheriff in Selma, Alabama, uh, you could demonstrate against the mad dog sheriff and you could provoke violence against innocent men, women, and children. And there was a moral center in Washington to whom you could appeal. You could appeal to the Congress. You could appeal to President Lyndon Johnson. And if things got bad enough in Alabama, Lyndon Johnson would say, wait a minute, George Wallace, we're going to come down there and put you in jail if you keep this up. The thing that frightens me is that I don't see that moral center in Congress or in the White House now. I think you can bark at Donald Trump all day long, but until we find the levers to pull in Washington to really get change to happen, um, you know, our age is is not going to succeed the way the 60s did. You know, we must demonstrate and march together, but unfortunately, I think now the marches are only the first step 
and marches which in the past, in the 1960s, would have attracted and forced action from the Congress and from the judiciary and from the president. That's a, that's a more risky proposition now because the presidency, uh, I mean, I don't think, you know, I, I think you can demonstrate all day long and Donald Trump won't give a damn. So where are the new levers that we can pull to actually affect change? As you spent time talking to people about the the legacy of Eyes on the Prize, I'm I'm, I'm curious what stood out to you f- of of people who are just viewers of the series. You know, I've found generally that people, ordinary viewers, do understand, as Henry would have wanted, that the civil rights movement was driven from below as much as it was driven from the top. It was, it was thousands, tens of thousands of ordinary black folks in the American South who rose up and said, no more. And I think that point has gotten across, was gotten across quite well in uh, Eyes of the Prize. You know, we find out after the fact, years later, we find out, you know, who's actually watching these films. I know when I did The Day After Trinity, a film about the making of the atomic bomb, I found out that the first print of that film was purchased by the CIA. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, fine by me. If the CIA wants to learn about nuclear weapons from my film, I, I say, you know, more power to them. In the case of Eyes in the Prize, in the early 90s, uh, there was a letter that arrived at Henry Hampton's office from a newly elected young politician from Illinois, a guy named Barack Obama. And Barack Obama was contacting Henry Hampton to see if Henry would read the manuscript of, of the book that Obama was writing, uh, Dreams from My Father. So, you know, somebody, somebody was watching this. I want to thank John Else for speaking with me. His new book, True South, is now available in hardcover and electronic editions. Eyes on the Prize is available on DVD and iTunes. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. Thanks to our team. Series producer, Michael Scotty Jr. Sound mixer, Kyle Murphy. Web designer, Cross Strategy. Marketing coordinator, Sarah Moto. Social media master, Jordan Smith. And executive producer, Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. If you're in New York... Check out our screening series, Stranger Than Fiction, on Tuesday nights at IFC Center. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.